This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. So good morning and welcome to Advocating for Democracy in Africa. Delighted to have with us this morning, Dr. Melinda Adams, who's Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Letters and Professor of International and Public Affairs at James Madison University. We also have Tamara White, who is Research and Project Assistant in the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Good morning, Tamara. We have Megan Allen, who is Program Manager of the Southern and East Africa Program at the National Democratic Institute. Good morning, Megan. And we have Dr. Joanne Gabin, who's Executive Director of the Furious Flower. And we also have joining us this morning, good morning, Joanne. We also have joining us this morning, Egbuli Philip Onyekachuku, who's joining us from the University of Delta in Agbor, Nigeria. So I wonder if we can, if we can start, I want to ask you all, um, what brought you, um, what led you to the work you are doing on Africa, uh, to your research interests um, or to your, um, or to your programmatic interests in Africa um, and, and to working on democracy in Africa? Tamira, we'll start with you. So what kind of led me to start working on Africa and looking into democracy in Africa is um, kind of my undergraduate career led me to start focusing on Africa and various aspects, um, just learning about development and how the international development space works and how institutions work um, in Africa and kind of wanting to bridge the gap between ideas and thinking that these projects would work and the importance of actually working with communities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I got a master's in international peace and conflict resolution. And that's when I really started diving into democracy and governance and kind of what um, factors those play in uh, maintaining peace, creating peace. And um, looking at how governments can aid like civil society actors and their communities in local peace building and all that. So that's kind of like a, a summary, a very quick summary, but yes. Megan, what, 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 how did you become interested in work in Africa? Um, sure, I don't have uh, a great memory of, of actually how I came to be studying um, the region in undergrad, but I did, uh, I went to JMU. I was a 2010 political science undergrad um, focusing on international affairs and one of my minds in African communities and migrations. Um, and of course I took classes with Dr. Adams among other people um, who kind of sparked my interest in um, international development within the continent. And then from that, I kind of transitioned to a focus on human rights um, because that was the topic of kind of high interest for me. Um, and then that kind of transitioned to more focusing on democracy, um, democratic systems and political transitions in general. Um, and then I did also, uh, I took a job and spent about a year and a half living in Ghana. Um, and so that was a really great experience and kind of further solidified my interest in the region. Um, and now of course I work on East and Southern Africa um, with my current position at um, NDI. Melinda? 
So, so like Mike, Megan and um, Tamara, I also became interested in African politics as an undergraduate, but this was many years earlier. Um, and so I was studying, I guess, African politics as an undergrad in the 1990s. And this was sort of a key moment for political changes. So with the end of the Cold War and both internal and external pressure, this was sort of the moment of the third wave of democracy, as it's been called by Samuel Huntington, with you know, changes from one party states um, to multi-party politics and more regular and more competitive elections. And so this was sort of an exciting time to, to look at political changes in Africa. And as an intern um, in my undergraduate career, I actually ended up going to Liberia in 1997 as an election observer um, for their special elections. And this was exciting and um, really sort of striking how people were willing to walk long distances, to participate in elections, to stand in line for hours, all of these things that, you know, even though voting is relatively simple here, you know, we often have low voter turnout. But at the same time, it was juxtaposed with the result of the election, which was um, Charles Taylor, who was the warlord who had started the civil conflict in Liberia, was elected with over 75% of the vote. And so um, there were sort of threats of insecurity and, um, you know, control of the media, you know, it was very much an unequal playing field. So I was really interested in both this sort of excitement about participation and also kind of limits of elections, particularly when we just look at them on election day. Um, so I ended up then going on to graduate school, studying African politics, um, and was particularly focused on um, women's political movements, um, women's rights organizations, and sort of pushes for um, greater participation of women in the political sector. Um, and we see, you know, a lot of um, changes, particularly at the legislative arena um, with Afri in African states with um, much higher levels of representation. And so I did my dissertation work in Cameroon, um, but then since I've been at um, JMU, have been involved with the Ghana Study Abroad Program and have done some research there. Joanne, I wonder if you can share um, some of the work that you've been doing with Africa. Well, Kara, it's been a 50-year journey for me. In uh, 1971, my husband and I decided that we were going to have our first abroad trip to Africa. So we went to West Africa. And uh, so that was just about 14 years after uh, the independence movement, starting with Ghana. And so uh, we wanted to go to uh, West Africa, especially Senegal, uh, Ghana, the Ivory Coast, and uh, also Nigeria. So uh, that's where it all began for me. And I'm thinking about uh, a poem that I, uh, that I wrote that I'd like to maybe share at this point, uh, because it does, I suppose, crystallize for me that first experience on the, on the West African coast. And later on, I discovered through uh, African ancestry that my family's roots are in Sierra Leone. So I passed right by where my people came from. So, but this is a poem called Blackstone. On the sea trip to Gory Island, I watched Senegalese boys who swam near the sides of the boat, catching coins tossed by the passengers. 
Some boys caught them between their teeth. Their glee in the sport belied the danger. The scene repulsed me. I am once again on the streets of Dakar, witnessing the twisted beggars whose pretzel deformity earned them more than other cripples. Even though I knew that the boys reached and grabbed in the shark ready waters out of need, I hated the history that brought them there and the corruption that fixed them in place. Soon we were in sight of the door of no return where the boats anchored in the roadstead barely bobbed in the bluish water. The Maison de Esclaves stood just beyond the port. The pink and turquoise building was freshly painted for the tourist gaze. A tour guide waited, his frame gracing the portal, his clothing sand colored against his ebony skin. We followed him up the stone steps to the entrance of the house. The walls were washed in rose pink. The rooms were mostly bare. Only a few pieces of ornate furniture to suggest a formal opulence. We ambled slowly to the upper rooms with their arched hallways and looked over the balcony to the yards, surveying the expanse of sand interrupted only by patches of grass. He said casually, on this side, the men were exercised while the women and children were kept here. But all I could see were naked bodies ravaged by a succession of Dutch, British, and French gold seekers. All I could hear were the Mandy cries, cursing the Dula people who traded in souls. The guide took us to the back stairs. The pastel walls disappeared and exposed stone with the look of centuries lined our way down. There's no color in the dungeon only dirt floors and narrow openings. The spaces were not meant for breath. The guide practiced in telling the story told how 30 or 40 were crammed in rooms no bigger than a nursery. The porridge passed in pots in the narrow in-betweens, was eaten by the strongest. Many died with sustenance only a few bodies away. The other tourists went on following the voice of the guide. I stood there in that small space and for a few moments, I could feel the crush of spirit speaking to me. I was not afraid, just acutely aware of the sadness. Though the dirt was long since cleansed of the fetid odor of bodies, I imagined that I could smell resilience mingled with the stench of fear. Alone with this human tragedy, I knew I would never unsee it. I needed something to honor the visitation of spirits that I witnessed. I pushed my body through the square opening in the cellar onto the rocky shoreline and picked up a black stone the size of a petite loaf of bread. I wonder how many had tried to save themselves, how many had crawled through the opening to the sea. 
with nowhere to go but the crashing waters of the Atlantic, too weak to swim the distance. I put the black stone in my handbag. I would carry it, barnacled with the ruined cells of my ancestors. I would take it past the places they had walked in Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Nigeria. It would go with me home, safely across the Atlantic, over sanctified bones. The black stone would remind me of those who were marched to the door of no return and made it across. So for me, that was the very emotional beginning of my knowledge of Africa. I'll stop there. Joanne, uh, one of the words that struck me in your poem was this question of, of resilience. Um, and Melinda also mentioned, um, you know, what interested her was the, the third wave of democracy. Um, and, and yet perhaps the complexity of both um, participation, um, but also the, the limiting structures um, that might lead to different outcomes than uh, what, what Africans themselves um, uh, uh, were, were desiring, were wanting. Um, globally, we're seeing a, demo, a, a, back, a back, globally, we're seeing democratic backsliding. And I wonder um, if our panelists might address um, how, in what ways, current developments in Africa might be similar to democratic trends globally, um, and what ways they might be distinctive. I know we've seen uh, uh, a rise in, in social movements and interest in activism, um, and yet similarly um, uh, also uh, challenges with democratic institutions and structures um, and, and elites. Um, so Megan, I wonder uh, if you might start us off with this question, how do you see um, the trends in Africa relating to global trends? Sure, I'll definitely give it a try. Um, I think it's, Probably first important to note that, um, you know, Africa, like any other continent, is many, many countries with different kind of political contexts and backgrounds and cultures and people and languages. And so it's difficult to talk about kind of these broad generalizations of, of a whole continent, but we'll do our best, I think, in this conversation with our limited knowledge and expertise. Um, so, but to answer your question, I think certainly there's been democratic backsliding and autocratization and, and all of this happening globally, as you mentioned, not just on the continent. Um, and there's certain trends that I think we've seen in the last couple of years, especially with COVID, that um, have really uh, kind of presented the challenges to, to democracy um, and the consolidation of democracy uh, on the continent and not just globally. Um, I think one of those trends is um, personality politics, uh, you know, social movements and political movements that are really built around one individual and how that can translate to, I think, un more unstable um, democratic systems rather than having kind of fully built out multi-party systems. Um, another, what, another one I wanted to mention was kind of misinformation, disinformation. Um, which I believe we might, <laughs> we might dive into a little bit more later, but that obviously plays a, a big role in challenging 
Um, another one I think that we see, um, especially in the countries in which I work on is closing civic space. Um, you see kind of uh, attempts by um, leaders in power to limit the ability of civil society groups to operate in some context, freedom of expression and media and other contexts, which really is an aim at um, reducing the ability of individuals to have freedom of expression, the ability of potentially opposition parties to really operate um, and kind of get their messages out so that people can really, um, you know, be aware of their options when they're engaging in a political system. Um, there's there's so many more, but I we have other panelists, so I want to give an opportunity for others to also chime in. Mary, you've just uh, released a, a report, uh, Foresight Africa 2022. And I wonder if you might talk about what you have found um, as you're examining trends in Africa related to democracy. This year's Foresight kind of touched on democracy um, a, a bit, um, but Foresight 2021 really kind of dove into democracy and uh, what COVID, the implications of COVID-19 on democracy. Um, so like Megan said, and like everybody knows, you know, COVID-19 has, exacerbated a lot of problems in all countries, um, especially in leadership institutions and just general rights of citizens. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that we saw in Africa is um, particularly with youth uprising. So during the, the pandemic, there was an increase in citizen dissatisfaction. And not only that, but citizens protesting to kind of get the rights that they deserve and also challenging leadership. And I think that that's an interesting thing that has came out of the pandemic in the African context. And I hope that continues after the pandemic because it is, very refreshing to see, you know, people mobilizing and challenging um, authority to get, you know, the rights that they deserve. So, for example, we saw like Nigeria, especially with the NSARS protests, um, protests in Cameroon, Liberia, Tunisia, South Africa. And so there was a huge wave of citizens standing up. And I think that's very and very important factor. Um, that was shown within the COVID-19 pandemic. So kind of on the other side of things, but um, I think it's a, a glimpse of hope. And I think that strategically um, youth leaders and other people leading social movement can use you know, this COVID-19 and the increase of uh, social media use as well to kind of mobilize themselves and continue to push and get the change. Melinda, I wonder if you can share how you view the current trends within a global context, but also within a historical context over time as you've studied both um, women's political representation and also party system. Yeah, so I was thinking about as, as particularly as Megan was talking, just this sort of trends in the ways that people have studied African politics. And so, you know, when I was initially studying it, there was a lot of focus on personal rule um, and what's, you know, big man politics and mostly they were men. So it was like big man um, and, you know, really sort of focusing on executives because so much power is centralized in the presidency in so many states. And then, you know, with this sort of trend towards democratization or institutionalization in the 1990s, there was more attention on kind of studying African politics with the same kinds of lenses as we study other 
other politics globally, right? So not sort of seeing it as, as distinctive and sort of, our, you know, putting it in this context of institutionalization, looking at things like constitutions, term limits, um, and particularly a lot of emphasis on, on term limits um, initially as sort of an, um, a limit on executive power and now sort of attempts to extend or um, evade these term limits. Um, and, and legislatures, um, judicial branches as well. So focusing on these institutions, so kind of looking at African politics in the same way we study politics anywhere. And so I think there has been this more normalization of African politics, but also a recognition that institutionalization doesn't equal democratization, right? So we see, you know, more political parties, more multi-party politics, more regular elections. Um, but in, you know, and in some cases this has led to um, deepening of democracy. So for example, Ghana, um, where we have highly competitive elections, very close elections, but everyone respects the rules of the game and we've had transitions in power. But in other places, so for example, in Cameroon, where I study, you have you know, elections and you have all of the kind of institutions that we associate with democracy, but it's a fully authoritarian system. Um, and so, so I guess there has been this trend from sort of seeing it as like personalities to greater institutionalization, um, but then also seeing the limits in many of these places to institutions actually constraining leaders and in some cases um, kind of being used for autocratic purposes. Tamira mentioned um, the important role that organizing and protesting has been playing recently and some of the trends were in that area. And that's an area that, um, Philip studies. And so Philip, I wonder if you might share what um, you have been researching on uh, protest movements and especially women's protest movements as they relate to democracy. Yeah, thank you. Actually, I think as I was saying before the interruption by the network, actually in Nigeria, the, the, the one of the major protest movement was uh, the Bring Back Our Guest movement. It actually started in uh, 1914 after the adoption of the Chibo guests. You know, there were students uh, in the secondary school in Northern Nigeria. They were adopted by the Islamist uh, extremists, the Boko Haram set. Okay. And uh, since then, I, I, if it were possible, I, do, I think I shared my, my, my PowerPoint to you or, or Jody, you will see the pictures of these guests and the protesters. Even fortunately, us to be able to attract foreign support, like the wife of the former U.S. President Michael Obama. We can see her with the black eyes. Bring back our guests, and this 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 movement was led. In, you know, by one of the prominent Nigeria, Ubi Ezekwesele. So it was, it was, in, uh, unfortunately, our political actors, the Nigerian government, they says, okay, you can see, uh, this is one, you can go down to see some other slides showing a, a foreign, foreign uh, that is the, the, the founder, the convener of uh, the movement, Dr. Ngozi Ezekwesele. You can see the wife of uh, the next slides, okay. Uh, you can see the wife of uh, the U.S. president. All oh, they were all concerned. We have individual protesters. We have uh, pictures of uh, group protesters all over the world, in the Netherlands, in the U.S., in other another parts of Europe. They are trying to to lend their support 
to this group that indeed the 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 the, the guests were adopted by these people and the federal government of Nigeria was not making any concrete effort for their release. Hence, this movement was organized as a protest movement to prepare and to compare the government through National Assembly to put up missionaries in place for the release of these guests. These were just young guests. They, they, that they, 276 of them, young guests of between 14, 15 years. And there is, although then with the movement and the, the support of other foreign, you know, agency and all that, some of these guests are released. But it it is painful and uh, pathetic to say that some of these guests are still missing. No one can actually say where they are, what they are doing, and all that. So the the the, the way the 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 Nigerian people are taking political uh, system. Is is becoming uncomfortable for Nigerians because every almost everything has been, you know, politicalized. The educational system, the religious system, almost every system. You see politics, tribalism coming in, and I think one of the major factors responsible for our weak and nascent democracy, despite the fact that Nigeria, our fourth republic, started in 1999. That was the election that brought in Abbasanjo as a president. And since then, there have been no interruption. There have been no major interruption. It's unfortunate to say that after 20, it should be about 23 years of, of military, uh, I mean, civilian rule, democracy, there are still a lot of things that are happening in the Iran political system that we are not comfortable with. And one of the factors that actually led to our weak democracy is. Um, Subsequent, I mean, uh, frequent uh, defection, party defection, and that will lead to a weak uh, opposition. The opposition party is very weak. For instance, the ruling party, APC, we have uh, the opposition party, the PDP. But you see, we, we, we are saying that in Nigeria, there are a lot of, uh, you know, frequent uh, defection, cross carpeting, people jumping from one political party to another. And this does not give room for a stronger opposition. And a democratic system where the opposition is weak, it will actually affect the democratic development of that nation. And we also see inequality, gender inequality, and all that. So you look at the system, you discover that educationally, I think uh, we can say that there's inequality. And not only that, the high rate of poverty in our system, for instance, people can easily be, be cajoled into voting for a particular candidate. One, they're ignorant. They are not. They are, they are not exposed. They are not nailed. Uh, Secondly, they are poor. I, can, I, I had an experience. One of the elections, I went to my town. I, I will say that this uh, group. I, I think they did well, but uh, of recent they have been silent. They have been silent. I think one of my recommendations I'm, I'm advocating that they should come up, and in order of funding too. I don't know why, I don't know, would I say they are shy or what? They, they didn't, you know, see need, the reason to collaborate with others or maybe international organizations to support them financially, to carry out this, uh, the agenda. But rather, they depend mainly on, their, on, on themselves, the members, you know, uh, immediate contribution for the members for, for them to purchase, you know, buy fare for their cars, 
buy the T-shirt and, uh, and all that. So in, in my recommendation, I, miss, I have to encourage them you know, that there is a need for them to actually you know, seek for support, seek for support from uh, other persons like international communities. Uh, that, I know in Nigeria, whenever money is involved, uh, a lot of people may like to come in and, and that would defeat the aim of the movement or the organization. So I believe that was why they want to stay clear from you know, involving people to come up with uh, you know, contributing money to them and others. But uh, generally, I would say that the, the movement has actually on their own tried to expose to the world the intimidation and the injustice that is actually going on in Nigeria or in the name of uh, politics. I think for, uh, I will rest a while for now. Maybe in subsequent times, I will also uh, make some contributions. Philip raised the challenges that's being posed by military interventions. Um, and I wonder, um, and both how that relates to um, uh, democratization, um, but also in response to um, civil society and protest movements. Um, I wonder if our, uh, I wonder if our panelists can talk a little bit um, about how uh, domestic and regional factors are contributing to um, the growing military interventions in, in politics and in civil society. I think I would, I would like to make a little contribution to this in, in this aspect. No, my, my, you know, before now, Nigerians or our, our people have been blaming the military for Nigeria's underdevelopment because of frequent military intervention and in governance. Actually, when we got our independence in 1960, in less than six years, that was January 15, 1966 to be precise, there was military coup, military intervention. And uh, it, has, it, remained, it, it, continues, it, it, it was like a recurring decimal in Nigeria's system. But we discovered now that even since 1999, when Nigeria, you know, emerged, I mean, the first republic emerged in Nigeria, they have no, they have not been any way, any form of military interference or military interruption since 1999 to date, which is about 23, 23 years now. So the, the point now we are trying to bring out of this is that we cannot continue to blame, you know, the, the, the military for our other development. Because 20, 23 years uninterrupted military or I mean, uninterrupted democracy is enough for us to develop. So why are we see at the nascent state? Why are we see crawling? Why, why, why is our democracy at, uh, at uh, its knee speed the pace? So it's, it's, I'm concerned about, about, about that. That is, that is my challenge. So there are, so, there are other factors that we need to, to address apart from military intervention in our democracy. In Africa in general, although there are some countries actually that there are some cases of uh, military intervention in recent times, okay? But in Nigeria, we, we don't, there's no reason why we should be underdeveloped democratically because we have blamed the military for our underdevelopment. But now they are stayed away from governance and their politics. So 
other other factors that I've mentioned are traceable to the civilian or the democratic leaders in Nigeria. That's the point I want to bring out, bring out from this uh, discussion. Thank you. Linda, I wonder if you want to um, uh, also kind of address uh, as well the, the this question of broader military in interventions in Africa. Kara, uh, I would want to mention just um, my most recent trip. I started with the first trip uh, in 1971. So it, it's been 50 years of watching um, this uh, urge for democracy in, um, in African countries. And I remember that first trip, the, the, the most uh, memorable symbol was a young man with his fist up uh, saying black power and um, uh, talking about James Brown and I'm black and I'm proud, you know. You go from there to my latest trip in 2018 to Eswatini, originally known as Swaziland, and working with poets there and understanding as a part, we were a part of an arts envoy to Eswatini and understanding there the, the urge for freedom in this last kingdom on the continent of Africa. So uh, it was certainly not a political trip that we went on. We went on an arts trip. We went there to talk with uh, students uh, from children to adults about poetry. But in that conversation, we learned about their a desire for uh, a democracy. And uh, in fact, if I could share just uh, a part of a letter that I received from uh, one of those friends that I met in uh, Eswatini. It says, at the moment, it is difficult to travel long distances within our country, since most roads are littered with police and soldiers who search vehicles and turn back civilians. But it has been relatively quiet these past two days. We are bracing ourselves for much more difficult times. The King has banned marches and issued a warning to all towns, cities, municipalities in Iswatini. We, the people, are not happy with his decision. And today there's a mass meeting whereby public sectors, organizations and other civil organizations will discuss a way forward. The people have vowed to defy everything that the government says. As we speak now, an interim government is being formed, consultations are being made and Swazis have made it clear that this current government is illegitimate for they have blood in their hands. And I, I'll just excerpt that little piece. But he goes on to talk about the difficulty in uh, Eswatini, the violence and the killing. And uh, of course, this was a great concern to me, not in terms of the public uh, tragedy, but the personal one, because I got very close to many of these people when I was there and we have continued a relationship. And I can go back to your question, Kara, about military interventions. And I think Philip makes a really excellent point that there really has been 
um, a diversity of responses. So places like Nigeria and Ghana and Benin that had multiple military interventions in the 60s and, and later um, have now had you know, decades of uninterrupted civilian rule. So it's not, you know, as Megan said, there's a diversity of countries across the continent and a diversity of experiences. Um, but we have seen in the last few years an uptick in the number of military interventions and most recently um, in Burkina Faso, in Guinea, in Sudan, in Mali, um, a coup attempt in Guinea-Bissau recently as well. And so it's led to, you know, growing attention on military intervention and sort of questioning of, of what's of what's going on, um, particularly because there had been sort of a trend beginning in the 90s of a move away from coups and maybe um, other ways of, 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 of limiting power, things like removing term limits a little bit more subtle um, than, um, than military interventions. But I do think that there are several factors that have contributed, particularly in the sort of Sahel region, um, to growing military intervention. And so part of it is insecurity. So as Philip mentioned, you know, Boko Haram and other um, Islamist groups and um, that have been active in the Sahel region. Um, and so sort of concerns about government's inability to protect citizens and provide security for citizens, um, you know, poverty in, in many of these areas as well, popular discontent with leaders. And so I don't see this as a kind of anti-democratic, you know, if we look at um, public opinion polling from like Afrobarometer, um, there's still a lot of support for democracy and for elected leaders, sort of popular support for that, but sort of frustration with, um, the ineffectiveness or corruption of specific leaders um, that are not sort of seen as um, sort of fully democratic. And then I think we've also seen relatively weak responses from regional organizations, so from African Union or from the economic community of West African states. And so there's been some fear of maybe the eroding of the anti-coup norm, right? That, um, and so it's not that there's, you know, necessarily any kind of contagion that's existing, but that there's sort of learning on what happens in one state. And if you see a relatively weak international response, it may sort of reshape what domestic actors um, feel is possible in other states. Thank you, Melinda. Tamara, I wanna to turn to you and ask you, um, you know, in the Africa Foresight 2022, um, it notes the uh, remarkable leadership role um, that women in Africa are taking. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, um, uh, how Africa's women and girls are leading in democratic inclusion, both in politics and on the global stage. Yes. Um, so there is there has been a, a uptake in women representation in um the political space whether it be president so marissa's had their first female president malawi has also um had a female president um and then there's also been parliamentary representation um but this has been dominated in particular regions, so particularly Southern and East Africa, um, make up the bulk of the women's repre representation across the continent. And so that means that there is still a lot of work to be done to, to achieve true representation of women in leadership. Um, I think there the number is that uh, as in terms, for parliamentary seats, I think African women are about at 24% of that. Um, 
which is close to the global average, but again, dominated by Southern and East Africa. So countries like Rwanda tend to have um, a lot of gender, um, a lot of, I don't want to say gender equality, um, because there's still some things that could be worked on, but they have a lot of women's representation in these powerful spaces. Um, but we can also see um, outside of like the official political um, space that women are also um, leading and um, pushing social movements in Africa as well, which is also an important role. So the role of women in community and peace building, the role of women in um, pushing for change. And I think that women are, I don't wanna say beginning because, um, Historically, there has been examples of African women um, leading movements and doing these things within the community. But I think thanks to social media and um, the deviation of research from um, traditional African women with a basket on head and going to fetch water and feeding the children that we are now able to see African women in a different light. And I think that Again, there is a lot of work to be done um, to continue to increase women's representation because sometimes, although they're represented, they might not always get the opportunity to push policy or once they get in that seat, we need to figure out, okay, how can we successfully give them a voice in this still male dominated world? So it's, I think, it's more complex than, okay, we have these women in these these seats, we have this woman president. Well, president is a little bit different because you do have more power, um, but I think there is still a lot of work to be done, um, especially given like cultural context and et cetera. So it can be a tricky space for women to, to navigate because most of the time they're still not taken seriously, even though they're in these leadership positions. Linda, I, I wonder if um, I could just ask you to follow up. Tamira made a really important point about um, the variation in women's representation. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit um, based on your extensive research um, in this area as well, um, what might contribute to women's representation and, and why it varies across the continent. Sure. Um, so I think there are a number of different factors that this fellowship has pointed to. I think one is um, countries that have come out of a conflict experience, often that provides an opening for rewriting constitutions, rethinking the rules of the game. And so it's many of these post-conflict states where we saw the initial sort of breakthroughs in a, um, particularly in legislative representation. So places like Uganda or South Africa after the liberation movement. Um, so that's sort of one factor. Um, I know um, work has also focused, so my dissertation advisor and um, mentor, Eileen Tripp, has done a lot of work on autonomous women's organizations. So looking at, um, you know, women's groups um, that are independent from the state and able to sort of put pressure um, on the state to adopt gender quotas and to implement those, and particularly at these moments of change. So in a post-conflict period or a period of transition, um, there's also been, as, as Tamara emphasized, this sort of regional learning, and I think the role of regional organizations in press and sort of promoting these norms. So, for example, the Southern African Development Community, or SADC, has been really proactive in pushing for um, gender equity policies, women's political representation across the region. And so that's why I think we're seeing some of those 
um, some regions that have done better than others. Um, and then, you know, the adoption of gender quotas and the implementation of these quotas, I think, has been really powerful. Um, and then finally, I think it is na the nature of the political party system and the electoral system that has made it more challenging in some states to get more women into political power than others. And there's also been growing attention on the cost of politics and, and how expensive it is um, and, and how, you know, women often have, you know, lower incomes, less autonomy over financial resources, um, and that can also make it challenging um, for women to um, contest elections that have become quite expensive in, in many states. Mara and Melinda also mentioned um, the role that social movements play, um, and, and Philip also addressed this in his presentation. Megan, you do quite a bit of work with civil society actors within Africa. I wonder if you can talk about the role um, that these social movements and activists um, have been playing um, in terms of trying to both challenge some of the negative developments that we've seen, but also press for greater democratic inclusion um, as well. And then Joanne, maybe you can also um, chime in on this, this question as well as with your direct experience. Everything. So I think picking up a little bit on what Tamara and um, Melinda were referencing with women's participation in politics, it's not just about representation, it's, it's about meaningful representation and participation um, and understanding kind of the additional barriers that women face to not only getting into representation or office or whatever form of political participation they're aiming for, but also um, having meaningful engagement once they're there. For instance, I think in parliaments, oftentimes women represent women representatives get put into you know the women's like women's focused areas um, and not necessarily in you know um, sections that have maybe more economic or military implications. And so I think that's one thing to acknowledge. Um, and tying to your question of how kind of social movements and working with civil society groups can help kind of push the needle on. Um, better democratic norms and inclusion and meaningful participation of all groups, including women in political processes and governing systems is that civil society groups is acting kind of um, as an external force that's that's mission driven, um, that's, you know, separated from the government in a way that they have um, a, an ability to kind of have, I think, an unbiased perspective in a lot of ways, you know, they're not pushing for their own agenda in the same way as somebody within um, the government can be. And so what I mean to say is, let me give an example. For instance, um, the in Ethiopia, there's a group, the Ethiopian Women's Lawyers Association, and around the elections, they were working to establish a system for um, reporting gender-based violence, because women oftentimes are subject to, when they're involved in politics, um, additional stigma. And uh, based on maybe potentially tr traditional or cultural norms, um, we see a lot of incidences of gender-based violence around women in politics. Men are often, I think, criticized in media around their lack of professional performance in some way, less so targeting their personal issues, whereas women are, are oftentimes sexualized or, you know, they're terrible moms, what are they doing in the political space, you know, just giving kind of these examples of what we'll see women target women political candidates targeted for. And so it's really important to have kind of systems in place that enable women to kind of have a safety net, have a support system, um, recognize that those barriers exist and and help them 
you know, try to try to get over those barriers. And so there's groups like this that that provide women that support system that provide um, an ability to for people to report these problems. Um, and and so that's just kind of an example, I think, of how working with civil society groups um, can really help uh, drive democratic change and establish systems that support a more inclusive political system. Thank you. And Joanne, I wonder if you could address the role of especially artists and, and, and activists. Well, you know, I was thinking about my introduction to um, Iswatini and knowing that there are women there who are seeking uh, independence, who are seeking freedom, but they're facing an antiquated system where the king has more than a hundred wives and there's a, a ornate system of choosing these women and they're paraded as though this is the most um, uh, amazing uh, uh, level you could get to, to be the king's wife. And to know that many of these women are deprived of not only the education, and the, uh, I suppose, training to become leaders themselves, but they're given this example of servitude and they see the opulence, the richness of the king and his family. And they realize that this is not the way they want to go. And to know that there's signs towards uh, independence, just a, a month or two ago, the queen mother, the, the mother of the king fled to Morocco with 80 of her attendants because uh, apparently there is this notion that the kingdom is falling. So, you know, I, I thought what an amazing contrast to see a modern, uh, I suppose, urges towards freedom and to deal with the ancient um, uh, signs or symbols of the uh, aristocracy. So that was very, very dramatic for me. And of course, you know, until I went to Iswatini, I did not know the depths of this uh, kingdom state. Joanne, you, you really started us off also in the first question, kind of noting the role that outside intervention has played in Africa, including especially colonial intervention. Um, but I wonder uh, if I can ask everyone to um, respond to how you see the role of regional and global actors um, interacting with Africa moving forward, both on democracy and, and perhaps linking to development as well, Tamara? I think this is a, a, a tricky question, right? Um, because ultimate, ultimately, all institutions, um, especially Western institutions, don't have the best interests of um, citizens. So this is a question that I always am kind of reluctant to answer because I don't think there is a 100% complete right answer. It is up to... Wow, this question is so hard because on one hand, I feel like a lot of um, institutions have failed Africa and Africans, right? Even within Africa and also from um, the development side of things, right? So because there is so much interest in um, like 
what Africa can offer. So oil, coal, and like all of these things and cobalt and these things. So we will give you this service and trade of this, you know? And I kind of envision, when I envision Africa, I envision them having more autonomy over their own resources, right? Um, and it, like, for example, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but this is really a hard question. Um, <laughs> so with a push for climate change and navigating away from oil and doing more, you know, energy efficient and environmental, like environmentally efficient things, like, but at the same time, are you going to invest in the infrastructure to do that? How are you going to switch all economies to economies that can support regenerative energy and these green energies? Um, and I think the conversation stops some uh, stops a lot of times abruptly. Like, okay, you need to divert away from oil. The end. But there is some conversation that still needs to be had, right? Because African countries do need the support to be able to transition away from these things, like Nigeria, oil economy. If you tell, if you tell him, if you tell Nigeria you can no longer make money off your oil, then what? You know. So I feel like a lot of institutions perform this way. They have great ideas and all these things for innovation, but when it comes time to invest and provide the money, they fall short. We saw this with COVID as well, um, with the va the vaccine donations and the test donations. Um, it's a good idea to donate these things, right? But also, what about the infrastructure? So we saw that um, coal storage was very important for a lot of the the for the transporting of the vaccines and just keeping them um, of use. And coal storage was something was an infrastructural thing that a lot of African countries struggle with and did not have. Um, and then institutions in Western countries just ultimately fell short of their promises. So even with investing for climate change, fell short of the, the money for that, fell short on the number of vaccines to supply. There's a lot of falling short when it comes to Africa. And I think that we need to rethink, reapproach, and overhaul the way that we do development in Africa um, with outside institutions. And again, I'm not trying to put all the blame on the Western world. Um, China also has interest in Africa. Um, Russia has shown some interest in Africa as well. There's been some exchanging of um, weaponry of sorts. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that promises fall short for a lot of these countries who are interested in Africa. But also, I keep I want to also keep saying promises fall short with African institutions as well. So they don't always hit the mark either. But I feel that if we can get um, bigger institutions to support African institutions uh, a little bit more that maybe ideally they would be able to, you know, gain some more efficiency and work a little bit better for, for Africans. Thank you. Melinda, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about how you see Africa, uh, the future of Africa um, in terms of 
uh, interacting with regional and international actors and how that might affect democratization? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I know um, the Biden administration has put a lot of attention on democracy and hosted the Summit for Democracies at the end of last year. Um, Anthony Blinken had a, you know, the U.S. Secretary of State had a recent trip to Africa, um, I think where did he go to Kenya, Senegal, and Nigeria, and, you know, he alluded to kind of the kind of recession of democracy and also acknowledged that the U.S. is not immune to these trends as well, and so I think there was a recognition um, that kind of holding the U.S. as the a model of democracy that, that that's becoming more more difficult um, in recent years, and so that it's more of a you know we are all um, addressing some of these concerns. So I mean I guess I hope that there might be a little bit more modesty um, and humility in approach rather than um, so much of a you know one country knows the answers and is trying to um, kind of encourage others to follow the same path. So I. I think there's a recognition of, of, of that sort of, of limits. Um, and then as Tamara said, you know, there's there's also, you know, the, the US, and I guess I'm speaking primarily from kind of a US perspective of, you know, recognizing growing interest from, from China, um, from Russia, um, economically and politically. And so um, increased sort of strategic attention on, on the continent. So I think perhaps maybe a little bit more um, engagement, but engagement on security issues, particularly in sort of um, 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 the Sahel and Islamist issues um, economically, and, and hopefully also potentially a shift. So I know one of the reasons why, you know, and, and of course, again, there's diversity, a lot of African countries appreciates some of the approach of China is that China kind of sees the continent as a place of possibility, as a place of, um, of resources and, and wealth, and that the U.S. often takes a perspective that, that's very different of, um, of more of humanitarian. And, um, and so perhaps engaging with the continent with a more of a sense of, you know, lots of possibilities there and opportunities for collaboration um, that would be you know, beneficial for, you know, ideally for everyone. Megan, I'd love to get your take on the role of organizations like the National Democratic Institute, where you are, and the role that um, that that non governmental organizations might play, um, both in supporting um, and facilitating greater democratic. Um, inclusion in Africa. Um, but also I wonder if you could talk about the limits and you know, you know what is appropriate for you know, um, uh, civil society organizations um, outside of Africa. I think this, this goes back a little bit to what Tamara was talking about, about how kind of foreign actors and foreign organizations and institutions really need to be aware of the local context and what makes the most sense for the countries we're working in, which I think is one of the things that organizations like NDI, whom I work for, and others in the kind of international development democracy promotion space have at the forefront or should have at the forefront of our minds anytime we're doing programming. Um, we really, it, the goal is to support kind of a local vision of democracy and a local, locally driven and locally owned processes to make democracy happen and make democracy deliver for all citizens in an inclusive way. And so that starts with really listening to local civil society groups, 
you know, the political parties, the government institutions, whomever the primary beneficiaries of these projects are, um, and, and understanding kind of what their gaps are, what their priorities are, what their needs are, and what kind of technical assistance or financial assistance might be kind of the best approach to making their vision happen. Um, and in a way that aligns with kind of best practices in the region and best practices globally on whatever kind of the particular issue area is. Um, so I guess to give some examples of the types of work would be, you know, if you're talking about elections, it could be supporting local civil society groups to monitor the elections. Like um, Dr. Adams said, one of her very first experiences was as an election monitor. Um, so there's international observation, but the, a really important component of elections is supporting local civil society to be involved in the elections and making sure that they're happening with transparency, happening with oversight, and not just on election day, but in the whole pre-election period because, you know, these days it's not about stuffing ballot boxes. It's about, you know, suppressing opposition from being able to even campaign or, or those more creative ways that authoritarian actors tend to inhibit um, meaningful multi-party competitive elections from happening. So, you know, supporting civil society to do civic and voter education um, or advocate for electoral reforms or, at the example I mentioned earlier with kind of um, creating more resources and awareness around gender-based violence in, in, in politics and in elections. And so these are just kind of some of the ways I think organizations like mine and others in the space try to help um, push for democratic uh, consolidation in, in the countries in which we work. Melinda mentioned earlier um, Afrobarometer, but, um, and I wanna just kind of pull out something that Megan just said. Um, uh, if we can pull on, what do we know, what more do we know about what Africans in Africa want um, and, and how they're viewing democracy um, and, and potential democratic reforms? And, and Philip and Joanne, please too also um, um, would love to hear from both of you perhaps to start, um, Philip especially being on the ground um, in, in Nigeria. And, and Joanne, your um, ongoing discussions with um, uh, poets in Iswatini. I'll, I'll start and just talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, I'm not naive and the poets I took with me were not naive about why we were there. Uh, the uh, State Department paid for our visit to Iswatini. And you have to ask the question why? They paid for it because they wanted us to interact with these young people there and to be the symbols of democracy that they want to promote. And of course, uh, those Swazis are very, very excited about interacting with uh, people from the United States because they see us having something they don't have, which is democracy or freedom. So we were there and we knew why we were there, but we also were very, uh, I suppose, uh, wise in terms of not dealing specifically with political issues. We allowed them to talk about what they wanted and to talk from their point of view, instead of trying to uh, press on them any ideas we had about uh, our democracy. So uh, that, was the, that was the main thing. So what I saw when I went to Iswatini was the opportunity to see the people as the valuable resource. And that's what we tried to develop. 
how do you allow people to use language to free themselves? And we found that in abundance there. And that's why I think, um, uh, I, I won't read this poem that I did, but I wrote a poem that appeared in... Um, oh, please do read it, Joanne. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, I, I'll, read, I'll read a little bit of it. Uh, I tend to write sometimes when I'm trying to unpack ideas. I tend to write uh, in two or three pages, and I don't think we had time for two or three pages here. But I will say that I'll read at least a couple of uh, sections. So uh, it's, it's called Mapping Iswatini. One, mountain speak. Our plane flies over the Mahaga Mountains, which form the valleys and gorges of Swaziland. I marvel at how they carry age. Billions of years, stratified layers beneath the green-hued rock. And I think of home. Over 8,000 miles away, the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, lush green in summer, waiting for this new day to arrive. These misty African mountains, cradling humanity, confound speech. We have come to bring words, but I can hardly untie my tongue in the presence of their majesty. Two, Minerva Lab Theater in Bonnie. We had come to bring words to, to the center of Swazi culture, where the country's wordsmiths and singers with names like, <laughs> I'm not going to say their names, transformed the drab theater into light where they made ancestors walk in flesh and fly with extended wings like eagles, where they told of Zagoma, grandmothers who divined secrets of the forest and told stories of the Matza clan who, makes it, who make it rain. All of us had come with our expectations bursting with brightness. Now we leave the theater like Olympians who bring the torch and pass it along. Three. SOS Children's Village. They bring the torch and pass it on. The fire is in the children's eyes. Loss of parents, hunger or poverty has not extinguished it. They are eager and, and joyful as they recite their language, proclaim their names and dream about who they will become. We learn their words. So Wambana, hello, necessary symbols to greet other. Njibona, thank you. Even more symbols to speak gratitude. We learn lessons from them, how to live in the moment, expecting nothing but what is before us, relishing time swifter than the impala, believing in absolutes like flowers, mountains, and love. We don't learn the word for goodbye. And because you pushed me, Kara, I'll just go on and finish it. Map by the heart, four. We came expecting strangers, shared words that made us friends, embraced children with only love to give, held counsel with men on fire for change and women who understand their elephant power. We learned that in Johnny, how are you is not an empty term. It carries heft 
like reddish rock where pines hold fast and is as, as plentiful as the acacia that graced the land. Now my finger traces the lines on the page, connecting places that I lock in my memory. Izurini, Majani, Mbani, where we learned the truth of magnitude and bond and found a people we mapped by heart. Now that's my love song to East Martini. And it was the love song that I wrote right after I came home. And I was looking at the map of all the places that I visited in that country. And every place was connected with an opportunity to connect with people who, um, who I then mapped by my heart. So uh, you could see that my intentions were not political in going to Iswatini. They were, they were humanistic. They were about the people and about education. But what I saw was the zeal for independence, the zeal for freedom, the zeal to change the system. And so they taught me that. And so when I heard about the troubles in Iswatini and the, the maiming and the killing and the harassment, um, I, it, it, it urged me, Kara, to talk with you about the possibility of this uh, particular session. So that's how I got to this place. Appreciate you sharing that so much, Joanne. <laughs> Philip, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what um, Nigerians are thinking now about democracy. Okay, okay. I think personally, um, we are hopeful. I'm an optimist. I'm see optimistic that one day things will get better. But unfortunately, at our our problem is not the Western world, although Western world may have contributed 20 or 25 percent of our challenges, democratic challenges in Nigeria or in Africa at large. But I want to say that Africans' problems are among Africans, especially our leaders. So if we can start by creating or coming up with a, an, a kind of a campaign, creating awareness campaign designed to educate the electorate, okay, on the importance of political participation. Because many Nigerians are so naive, they are so religious. Some may not want to participate in political activities based on religious background or religious factor. So we need a lot of orientation, reorientation, education to actually educate the voters, the electorate on the need for political participation. I think Africa generally, let me be precise, Nigeria in particular, I don't think uh, we lack resources. It's unfortunate that uh, Nigerians are poor. We have cocoa, we have uh, cotton, we have uh, rubber, we have granite, a lot of cash crops. But immediately we discovered crude oil. We abandoned the farm. We left the farm, we left agricultural production and uh, depend solely on our crude oil. Today is a challenge 
because the, the prices of crude oil is, is, is fluctuating, it's not static, it's not stable. And perhaps so many in, with the rate of innovation, cars, you know, with, with, with the use of solar engine and all that. So it's, it's a challenge to us. I think uh, if we can actually come out from this uh, poverty we are and the illiteracy, there's need for the nation to diversify her economy. Apart from crude oil, we have other mineral resources in Nigeria. We have gold, we have mine, we have limestone, we have tin, we have the Columbine and all that. So it's a, it's a serious challenge. We have, uh, people have been talking and talking, but our leaders are not helping matter. It's unfortunate that uh, we are not fortunate to have uh, good leaders. We have leadership, you know, problem. That was, I remember later Professor Chino Achibi. He said Nigerian problem is a leadership failure. And I think he's very right. So I'm so, I still believe that Nigeria will be great again. But if only our leaders are ready to listen and to be democratic enough. Thank you so much, Philip. Tamira. Yeah, so I want to kind of speak to, um, I think the other part of your question about, um, well, I guess this is your question. What do Africans want um, in terms of democracy? So um, you did mention Afrobarometer and they have done a lot of surveys on democracy in general. Um, so uh, some of their surveys have shown that like countries or kingdoms like Eswatini, um, their citizens do support, show support for a multi-party democracy um, and that has continued to grow. And we have seen um, that in within the, the, the protest there as well. Um, Sudanese citizens kind of have shown public um, opposition to military strongmen and one party rule. And that has been increasing since 2015. Um, also Liberians um, prefer democracy, but are unsatisfied with the way it works. And there are so many other countries um, that who like the idea of democracy will want multi-party elections, um, but they have reservations due to they don't like the way that it ends up working out in their particular country or has worked in other countries. Um, and then there was another one, I think uh, Ghanaians, they also prefer democracy um, to uh, any other type of regime. Um, and they showed interest in limiting presidential terms to two. Um, so there we see interest in democracy, but also interest in limiting the amount of time that um, a president can be in office, which I think is, a, is another issue um, that we can see in Africa, just tenure and, and, and leadership. And um, I'm going to plug in the youth now. I think if we can successfully get rid of tenure and ways around tenure, we can have new innovative leadership, especially from a lot of the youth that have been stepping up and kind of taking the stance. So I personally, that is something that I would like to see become a constant, but I know it's, again, very difficult. Cultural norms apply. And so hopefully one day, you know, we can have uh a system that works for a particular country um, and doesn't 
kind of disrespect their cultural norms, but can possibly work together with them. So with just five minutes left in our in our time together, I would love to ask each of you, what are your sources of what what gives you optimism for the future of democracy in Africa? And I know we've touched on this in a lot of ways, and especially talking about um, the resilience of women and and girls as leaders um, and in the role of social movements. Um, but uh, uh, Megan, let's start with you, please. What, what gives you optimism in terms of the future of democracy in Africa? Sure. <laughs> so, so working exclusively on democracy promotion in Southern and East Africa, um, or democracy promotion anywhere, honestly, can can be really jading um, because it's you know it's what I do like every day, um, and to see kind of backsliding in a lot of places, coups and and and, and just the, the challenges that these civil society groups face every day is really kind of disheartening at times. And so it's nice to kind of take a beat at times and really kind of connect with or think about the groups, um, the local partners, local parties, government institutions, whoever our projects are working with at the time and really kind of understand why um, they're doing this every day and why, um, the mission that drives both groups and the organization I work um, and find, I guess, optimism in that. Um, you know, local civil society groups keep pushing for a change. Um, and so if they're not quitting, there's there's no good reason for organizations like mine to. Samira, what gives you optimism? I think that Zambia has given me, me optimism. Um, so last year, again, led by the youth because youth are powerful and they have really been really at the forefront of this. Um, Zambian opposition leader, President HH, who is now president, won the election. Um, and this marks the third time that Zambia has had a smooth transition of power between the ruling party and ruling party and the oppositional power. So I think that this election showed hope in democracy because the Zambian people were dissatisfied with their leadership in their country. They voted for change and they got that change. So I think that um, not to put pressure on Zambia or anything, but I think that is um, a beacon of hope. And also Malawi. In Malawi, we saw important democratic progress as well. So I think that although democracy is retreating globally, that there are these spotlight countries that have um, really made progress and have really, you know, listened to their people. And I think that not that we should put the the sole focus on these countries, but I think it's important that we look at these countries and see what lessons could be learned and how um, can we implement some of the things that they've done in other countries. Um, and just like I said, Zambia really makes makes me smile because it was, you know, the whole thing, like citizens were vocally dissatisfied with the way the country was being ran. Um, the youth mobilized, the youth, you know, got out and got people to vote and the oppositional leader won. So now here's a chance for Zambia to reinvent itself, to reinvent the economy, to lessen citizen dissatisfaction. So I'm interested and excited to see how, how this plays out for the rest of his, his term. And I guess I'll add, I, 
I mean, I think three things give me optimism. One is the continued popular support for democracy. And so I put a link to an Afrobarometer um, essay that pulls on sort of 30 countries um, study and finds that, you know, 69% of Africans still say democracy is preferable to any other form of government, um, that 75% reject military rules, 77% um, reject one party rules. So there's still a lot of popular support, even as as Philip said, dissatisfaction with the reality in some places. Um, in addition to Malawi and Zambia, I think Ghana is a great example of this alternation in power through close elections. Recent um, local elections in Senegal point to opposition victories in major cities like Dakar. Um, and so another place to watch. So there are um, some places where elections are still highly competitive and you know everybody abides by the results. And then as others have said, popular movements movements and um, grassroots movements, youth, um, I think are all great sources of optimism. For me, um, technology gives me a reason to be optimistic. It was through technology that uh, poets and others in Iswatini learned about Furious Flower. It is um, through social media that their voices continue to be heard. We are drawn closer together because of uh, the internet. So the fact that these people in far-flung places are now close to us, we know their concerns, may become more than names we, we can't pronounce. So, uh, uh, so I'm optimistic. And especially in uh, 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 2019, we were able to bring five poets from Iswatini to JMU and to the um, 25th anniversary of Furious Flower. That would have been unheard of uh, 15 years ago, but now the internet has allowed us to know many of these uh, people, to know their concerns, to know their issues, and to know the, the urge for freedom that they feel in their soul. So that gives me op optimism. Well, I just want to thank all of our uh, panelists, uh, Jody Fagan, who helped us as the Zoom coordinator. But thank you so much to Tamira White at Brookings, Megan Allen at the National Democratic Institute, uh, Dr. Melinda Adams, uh, uh, Dr. Joanne Gabin, and Dr. Philip Onyakachuku. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin. JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.